You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Crispin Sartwell, how are you? Good, Dan. How are you, man? I am doing all right. It is, uh, as we draw near the end of the summer, I have this creeping feeling of dread sort of rising up in my guts. Yeah. At, um, um, and this summer in particular, I don't know, I, I really sank into deep laziness. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I tried to mobilize this summer, get it back together, lose Did 10 you? pounds, like, you know, just like get in shape, do home improvement. I tried to mobilize, but then I kind of collapsed again. You do look pretty damn good, I have to say. Oh, thanks, man. Did you actually, have you been like, you look like, you, did you lose weight? I did lose the weight. You didn't something. need it, but you did. I think you did. Um, no, and all joking aside, I think that six weeks in New York hit me harder than I realized. Yeah. I've, I've been kind of listless the whole summer. I've been, I find it hard to get motivated. Um, you had a hell of a lot to deal with in the spring and exhausting stuff to deal with, right? With you know? my dad, yeah. And I think we did a dialogue while I was there, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think I underestimated how much that took out of me. I think that pretty much wiped me out for the summer. Um, yeah. But um, emotionally, right. must have been really difficult. Yeah, yeah, and I, and and I, you've, I think you you've had to scrap and scrape and struggle a lot your, your whole life. But for me, this is the first really tough thing I ever I ever faced. Wow, I've, yeah, I've never really faced any real anything really hard. Um, and I it is really tough what you're describing, man. Like yeah, where yeah. you've been, yeah. Um. All right. So I'm with Crispin Sarwell, of course. Um, a fan favorite. Um, uh, professor of philosophy at Dickens, our associate professor. Yeah, at Dickinson College. When do you come up for your full final promotion? Um, I keep suggesting that they might want to promote me, and they keep not promoting me. That's all I can say. It doesn't go by a standard five-year chunk. Well, it ought to, and I ought to be a full professor, but I'm not, is what I could say. Okay. Okay, yeah. We, the way we do it is it's every five years you have to sort of apply. There's this whole process, and you can go up for early promotion, but it's it's usually frowned upon. Um, um, but um, anyway. It's late for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because that's you're a troublemaker. and um, Kind of. That's why I love you. Um, oh, but thanks, it's probably man. why administrations don't. Yeah. <laughs> they have a point. <laughs> um, um, you know, they don't like me very much either. But I've just, I, I, I just adopt, I've, I've been, whenever the administration in past has tried to fuck with me, I've adopted such a, an overwhelmingly menacing posture and response. <laughs> I've actually told the vice president that I would sue him until he was living under a box under a bridge, in a box under a bridge. Well, it kind of reached that kind of point with me, too. But anyway, yeah. It always it works, you know? I mean, it's a certain... Uh, uh, unless you're not it doesn't. afterwards. You're not, you're not going to, you know? <laughs> yeah, you got to try to intimidate these people or, or they'll fuck with you forever, man. Yeah, and, and, and their, their internal processes are all stacked to, against you, and so you never, ever want to cooperate with those, um, <laughs> is what I've found. I just, I just always bring a lawyer to everything, and that just seems to cut through a oh, lot. Oh God! Of okay, <laughs> been there, bro. <laughs> um, one day we'll have to, sh- you know, it's too bad that you're a recovering uh, uh, drinker because that's <laughs> yeah. I could just, we need to have a conversation about our trials and tribulations. Um, yeah, never, 
You never go to a department meeting without uh, a lawyer, you know, and their assistant, their staff or whatever, you know, too. Yeah, just bring an entourage of, like, your legal representation and everything. Um, So today we're going to – and I'm Daniel Kaplan, uh, of course. um, Welcome to the uh, Sophia audience. Blindheads.tv, meaningoflife.tv. I'm very glad to have Crispin back. We had, we after a little hiatus, um, and, um, Crispin, uh, we're, we're here to talk about an article that Crispin, uh, published not too long ago, um, in, uh, the Philosophical Salon. Now, is that sort of like the, 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 the LA Review of Books version of sort of like the Times of Stone? I guess so. So, yeah, I mean, except it's, it's a dedicated, like, sub-site, I guess. It's it's dominated by Zizek. Do you submit to them or do they solicit you? Uh, I, I sent that originally to the Los Angeles Review of Books. And then they said, well, we can't use it exactly, but we'll publish it on this Philosophical Salon site. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's, 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 on, it's on the Philosophical Salon, which is a, dead, uh, a, a philosophy subsection of the LA Review of Books. And it's called Western Philosophy as White Supremacism. And, um, so I'm here to talk with Crispin about it. Um, it is on a related, it's, it's on a related arc to, I did, I did a, a, a dialogue with Brian Van Norton, um, who wrote yeah. this book about, about that Western philosophy is sort of racist or at least the fact that we, as we practice Western philosophy, we, we leave out most of the Eastern tradition, non-Western traditions is racist. Right. And I, so, so there's a, there's a related, it's related, but you have a very specific, distinctive argument to make. Um, and, um, I mean, I, I basically agree with Van Norden too, but it's a different, uh, definitely a different argument. Yeah. The argument, it's interesting. The argument I had with him, I mean, I didn't necessarily agree with, disagree with, um, the, 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 the purely descriptive aspect of his, of his, uh, criticism, but I disagreed with was kind of the inflection of it. And so, I told him that what I thought he was, what he was, I told him that I thought that what, what he was attributing to racism, I would be more inclined, at least in analytic departments, to attribute to Philistinism. Um, because yeah. I, told, I told him that in the programs I've been and worked in, um, I would have been much more likely to read Chinese philosophy than Montaigne. Yeah. Right? That in a sense, that in a sense, analytic philosophy departments simply eschew all literary, literary yes, sure. philosophy. Yeah. And it just so happens that the traditions that, that he's interested in are heavily literary in a lot of ways. Um, and so they get kind of excluded, but yeah, a lot of literary Western philosophy gets excluded either. I mean, I, I didn't read, I didn't read one page of Montaigne, my entire graduate education. It's definitely worth reading though. Oh man. Montaigne is amazing. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I teach him. I teach him. I mean, yeah, yeah. I love anyway, Montaigne. So, so we had a nice conversation. I everything. Mean, this one, is a little different. And because um, it got me a little uh, worked up and upset, Crispin and I had a little exchange on on Twitter about this. Um, I want you to tell everyone what the argument is, what, what what you were trying to do and what the argument is before I start in so that I'm not mischaracterizing you. Sure. Um, So why don't you start off with, you know, what was your idea behind this and what, what is the main central point you're trying to make? Okay. You know, it, 
this comes from, I mean, this is an idea I guess I had in the early 90s. Um, I was working on my book, um, Act Like You Know, which is about African-American autobiographies. Uh, it's also like an example of white identity studies. Um, and I was teaching African-American thought to like an all-black class at the University of Alabama and really struggling with uh, this in many dimensions and getting called on my shit a lot too. Like just like even just the idea that I was an authority on W.E.B. Du Bois or whatever was uh, problematic to my own class and stuff. But anyway, I, so I was like drenched in African-American autobiographies. I was trying to read every African-American autobiography that had ever been published, which is ridiculous, actually. It's impossible. But I thought I could get some ways. Uh, and I just and I and one night I'm in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I, I kind of sit bolt upright and realize that the structure of anti-black racism is exactly the structure of Cartesian dualism. Like, you know, like I, I guess I was kind of mystified rummaging around trying to figure out if there was something that brought all this stuff together. And it, it just dawned on me like this is anti-black racism by white people is just Cartesian dualism. Like it comes from the same, uh, it just displays the entirely the same structure. So, it basically, and I think this runs through Western philosophy, like this is maybe the basis of Western philosophy in some ways. Um, we consist, I mean, in the Cartesian view, like we consist of two different sorts of things, a physical thing and a spiritual thing, or a physical thing and an intellectual thing. Uh, the physical thing is low. It's animal. It's material. Uh and but the spiritual intellectual thing is uh pure um and the spiritual intellectual bit and this is all in plato for example uh ought to rule the physical animal bit so you get this kind of um picture of the self i mean i think this is often the case in in philosophy the way the philosopher pictures the self is actually covertly a political philosophy. Like, okay, so the self is divided into whatever, four, five, two, 17 faculties or whatever. And um, then you start arranging what parts should rule what other parts, who should be in control of your body or whatever. Okay. Uh, or the body. Or, you know, who should be running yourself? And, you know, Plato's is, so, so you know, the Republic is based on the isomorphism of the individual self and the polis. And the structure, you know, the structures are identical. You know, they all, have, they're both three-part things and all of that. And the hierarchy is identical. That is the... The philosopher kings should be running the society because they are the minds and the mind should be running the body because the mind is high and spiritual and beautiful and all that stuff. And the body is gross and uh, material, degrading, disgusting. Um, 
So now when I start thinking about, I mean, it just struck me that all the stereotypes of black people are animal by white people are animalizing. Uh, they're constantly emphasizing the status of black people as mere bodies. Like for example, sexually voracious, for example, or, you know, with a tendency to violent crime, that sort of stuff. Like, uh, people who can't govern their own bodies because they don't have sufficient intellect or something like that. Okay. That, that, that's the form of the stereotypes of anti-black racism. Guess what? That is the basic structure of Western metaphysics. If you ask me, it's every freaking way. All right. And so like my feeling is that as anti-black racism or white supremacism arose in Europe in, let's say, the 16th, 17th, 18th century, it, it got kind of run through the familiar uh, value hierarchies involved in Western metaphysics. And, you know, it, it, it became this kind of imaginary mind-body dualism, except externalized. I called it, uh, what did I call it? E- ejected dualism or ejected asceticism in, in Act Like You Know. So, like, you just, instead of going, like, okay, I'm a body and I'm and a mind, and my mind has to conquer and control my body, and then I'll be free, okay, which I think is a bizarre, sick picture of what a human being is and wrong. Uh, I'm going to just say, like, I'm already a pure mind, all right? I'm civilized or whatever. Uh, and those people are pure bodies. It's like an externalization of Cartesian dualism. So we're minds, they're bodies. Minds are suited to rule bodies. We're suited to rule them. Uh, there basically is no way to morally mistreat people like that because they're animals, okay? And, and what makes someone morally valuable is, or human, is their intellect. Right? Uh, and then, like, I think, like, you know, we get forms of this later on with just, like, the idea that the experts should be running this sucker. Okay, like maybe this idea that maybe sort of Harvard professors should be running this thing or something like that, like the meritocracy of mind or something. I think this all reflects, first of all, thousands of years of history of Western metaphysics, and then second, hundreds of years of white supremacism and exploitation of black bodies. I guess that's it. Okay. Um, so... So that's good. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad that, that you did, you said you did this because, um, I was, so it probably won't be a surprise to anyone that when I read the essay, I was not just unconvinced, but really quite aggravated. And, um, um, I, I was ho- I was, I thought that, uh, I must be misunderstanding, I must be misunderstanding, I must be misrepresenting him, or because of my, prior orientation i must be filtering but now that you've just said this i see that that uh, i was exactly correct um and <laughs> in terms of in terms of my estimation of of what the issues are so let me just start um with with a number of things so first of all i i find a little so it seems to me like right now you've just sort of been flying around a lot 
So first I thought this was Cartesian, but then now you start ta started talking about Plato and it's the Greeks. But of course the Greeks aren't white and then they can't be white supremacists. And so that comes later, but now it's, it's not, so it's not just modern philosophy. Now it's ancient philosophy. But of course the Platonic dualism is very different from the Cartesian dualism. The reasons are entirely different. Um, one of the things that, one of the things I think you do that, that that strikes me as a little egregious is I think um you interpret these things in such a way that completely ignores the actual intellectual ideology of where the ideas come from right and so it gives a false impression right but okay. Descartes' dualism is a product of his mechanism it has nothing to do with all of these sorts of things that you want to try to connect it to right Descartes was primarily interested in modern physics um yeah. I, you know, I took whole courses on Cartesian science, um, where the point was to to make us understand that the that the focus on Descartes' dualism is historically anachronistic. It actually is not. It, it, it's not. It's not what his main his main interest is in physics. His dualism yeah. is the product of the the, the relatively crude uh, physics of the time. So then to start attributing this to sort of to, to, to take this and now use it in the story you want to tell strikes me as as a, as, be, as abusing as an historical an historical item right i mean it's it's I've, i find I've, one of the things i find is i find your approach very ahistorical um it's revisionist um okay. and I, I inherently dislike revisionist history because i think revisionist history is essentially propaganda um all right so but so, so let's start first of all this equivocation between the ancient and the modern okay so maybe you could become clear before we contest the actual argument, is this some, this thing that you're saying is happening, does it come out of modern philosophy or does it come out of ancient philosophy? Or if it comes out of both, what's the story and how it comes out of both, given that modern philosophy is in many ways a reaction against the, many of the central principles of ancient philosophy? So that's the first thing I want to yeah. ask. Well, I mean, one thing I, I definitely agree with you about is that you know, to call Plato a white supremacist would just be ridiculous. It makes no sense, right? I right. Mean, the they don't have white in any meaningful sense. Right. right. They, yes. They don't, I don't think there are any black and white people in the ancient world, actually. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Uh, yeah. Those are right. They didn't interpret themselves that way. Right. They talked about race maybe, but it, it, they didn't at all mean skin color. No. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, like I say, blaming, making Plato or white supremacist or any ancient philosopher would be just ridiculous. Okay. Um, that is an ideology that arises in, you know, 16th, 17th century at, at the earliest. That's right. Um, so, but my, I mean, one thing is like, I think that Plato's dualism is very similar to Descartes dualism in many ways. And that's not that surprising. I mean, uh, you know, Modern philosophy, well, I mean, one thing is, like, it was characterized by a rediscovery, you know, it, it was led into by a rediscovery of uh, a lot of these ancient texts and stuff like this, or just a rereading of Plato and Aristotle and all that. No, no, um, but, but before you go on, just on this particular thing about yeah. Platonism and Cartesianism, okay, I, I, yes. I really have to resist this. Look, the fundamental core element of ancient philosophy is the metaphysical reality of form. Okay. Okay. A form and telos, telos and form are, are defined, are interdefined. Okay. The quintessential defining element of modern philosophy is the rejection of the metaphysical reality of form and telos in okay. favor of a mechanistic view 
of the world, okay? Descartes' dualism, therefore, has nothing to do with Plato's. Descartes' dualism is a, is a, a result of the fact that his, the early mechanism was so crude, it was unclear how you could make space for mental properties within yes. it. So the yes. mental properties wind up being a hangover, but it is a, it is a result of the departure from ancient Greek philosophy. It is not in any way continuous with ancient Greek philosophy. Yeah, and I mean, I, the, the real crisis, I think, in modern philosophy was to take on these kind of mechanistic uh, scientific insights and then to defend human freedom. Right, like, how is human freedom possible in a right. universe? That's the right. crisis of modern philosophy. Right, but it's a crisis that is that is inevitable given the yeah. evolution of physics. Until you could understand that material reality, I'm sorry, that, that, that physical reality was not only was not only comprehensible in terms of matter, but in terms of energy. Until you understood that, you couldn't even imagine how mind and mental processes could be a part of the, a part of the physical universe, right? Right. So in, in other words, what I'm saying is your account depends upon a completely revisionist understanding of how Descartes' dualism arises, right? And well, no, because I think... connects it to the Greek in a way that I think is historically false. All right, but surely the Platonic... Plato is a dualist of some kind. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and a mind-body dualist to boot. Okay, so however this arises, however this arises, and how, whatever the ancillary metaphysical stuff is, like about uh, is the, the world a mechanical system or, you know, energy and so on, the, their view of what a human being is is at least quite similar in terms of its overall form. Uh, you know, in, in, Descartes, in Descartes' case, it is in a sense accidental. In Descartes' case, it is because Descartes is writing too early in the scientific revolution to understand that physicality need not entail materiality, right? However, 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 right? Because once you understand that energy is also physical, okay. then the idea that thoughts might be physical is no longer a strange idea, right? Right. It only okay. is a strange idea when you think of physicality purely in terms of extension, right? Which is what Descartes does. Right, true. And so my point is, is that, look, if Descartes had been 100 years later, <laughs> he wouldn't probably have been a dualist, right? De De Descartes was interested primarily in physics. And it, right. was because, it was because the physics of his time could not make sense of the idea of thought processes that they were sort of put into this other category. All I'm saying, I'm saying that Descartes an accidental dualist. For Plato and the Greeks, the dualism is essential to the metaphysics because they view form and telos as being part of, real, of, of, of the world, right? right. Yeah. Um, so, so that, that's my objection to that. I, I think Descartes is being, in a sense revised in a way that that's false to the actual ideology of where his ideas come from. Right. But uh, wh however he arrived at that, he regards a human being as a combination of two sorts of things. Yes. One of which is suited to rule the other. And that's what right. Plato right. does too. Right. And then, I, and then you get into, then you get into Christine Korsgaard and shit like this. Right. Where, well, we'll, we'll talk know, about that. We'll talk about that later. Then how this all yeah. plays out. And you're, I mean, so, but I want to. I want to do this step by step. And so, so the first thing is, you do accept. You do understand that Descartes' dualism is not 
is, was not, is not in a sense uh, a, a prior design, right? It's not an idea. It's like, oh, well, you know, how am I going to make sense of, the, of why the white people are so much better than the black people? Well, you know, I'll figure that I'll, I'll make this idea where, you know, in other, in other words, if Descartes is an accidental dualist, which I would argue is, is demonstrable from his, the arguments he gives for the dualism, okay, which are all having to do with mind not being extended, Right? right, not having, not, not having, not having um, 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 uh, volume and other material properties, um, then at least we can say that to the extent to which Descartes' ideas might have been taken up by white supremacists, it's not yeah. Descartes' fault, and it's not the history of philosophy's fault, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, just like, just like evolutionary biology was picked up by a bunch of racists, that doesn't make evolutionary biology racist, right? Okay, Fair and enough. I think you're making a similar mistake here. I think you're call, accusing philosophy of being racist because it might have been picked up by some racists later, and I just okay. think that that's fair. Right. Okay. And I'm I'm not straight up calling Descartes a racist, and I, I didn't even like go back and try to see if he said anything about this. Well, he probably uh, did, just because he was a, pr- a creature of that's his true. Time, right? True. It's a vast oeuvre. But that's but, not that's not because that's not the reason why he's a dualist, right? Right. But okay. Look, there's a cultural context in which that, and a political context, and an economic context in which that philosophy is articulated. It's not only a reflection of like the intellectual pressures of that moment, though it certainly is that. But it's, there's also, like say if you want to understand the essays of Montaigne or the plays of Shakespeare, you wouldn't say like, okay, what's going on politically in London or something is completely irrelevant to that because Shakespeare is responding to Marlowe. Right? Like he's exploring drama like this and that. Right. Descartes is responding to the scholastics. Right. Okay. Yes. That but has nothing to do with racism. No, he's also necessarily responding to the social and political situation that he's in. And I think that there are many, many symptoms of that in every philosophy. Look, so I like, agree, in general, I agree with you. You cannot, yeah, so, you cannot take a person, uh, the history, the, the individual out of the history of ideas. All that I'm saying is that, and you're absolutely right, Descartes coincides with, historically, right. um, imper- the, imperialist, the imperialist project, okay? Right, and that's just built by association. Right, what I'm saying is that that's coincidental. The relevant historical embeddedness of Descartes is the scientific revolution, particularly the mechanistic revolution, okay? That's the relevant historical dimension of Descartes, not the colonization of, 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 Mex- of Mexico. Or, 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 you know, that, that is not the orbit that Descartes is working in. Descartes is working within the, the, the first round of the scientific revolution. That's what he's... Well, he's working with the European aristocracy that's engaged in the imperial, imperialist project. I mean, I don't know. He, Do you really think that was Descartes' interest? No, uh, but I think that his philosophy reflects elaborately the power structures that he's in. And I think that's probably true uh, in one way or another of most philosophies, or even all philosophies. Like, it's an expression... You don't think that's a revisionist treatment of Descartes? Uh, I don't know if it's revisionist or not. I think it's, it, it's contextualizing. Like, it's, it's more difficult with Descartes than if, you're, if I'm yelling at Thomas Hobbes or something, or even Hume who have these notorious moments where they directly address this. Yeah, these I'm going to get to Hume in a minute because yeah, I, yeah. I, don't think Hume uh, works, I don't think Hume works for you very well. Hume has the, okay. opposite, 
Hume has the opposite problem. He really is kind of a, an obvious racist because he says these sorts of things. However, his philosophy yeah. is completely anti-dualist, right? Yeah, and that's so, true. And so, and, and he is, other than Kant, the most important philosopher of the Enlightenment. And so it doesn't, the other thing I was going to tell you is that I think your, narr- your, your narrative is completely a caricature. Right. I mean, I mean, it, it completely misrepresents. I would argue that there is a strong and anti-dualistic tradition running through the entire history of Western philosophy, starting with Aristotle. OK, um, as there is a dualist one. And so I also reject I mean, maybe you yeah. want to get to this now. I reject your characterization of the arc of Western philosophy. I just think it's wrong. Right. OK, fair enough. Collective. Right. In a way that makes your point. But that yeah. kind of rubs me the wrong way, you know. That's—I I don't expect that from my Crispin. I expect that from—I expect that from social justice agitator scholars. But you are like furiously, ruthlessly independent. And well, I, I was a little disappointed at what struck me. I know you know this history as well as I do. Probably better. I don't um, know. And so, uh, anyway, respond to that. I don't want to keep. I, I yeah, don't, I mean, maybe. I mean, partly, maybe it's the term "white supremacism" itself, which is a very social justice warrior term, and all of that. Um, it just gets thrown around like fucking candy, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I know. Used to describe both, you know, slavery and you know, a microaggression, right? Yes, I, know. I mean, I know. Anyway, and, and, I'm sorry. Yeah, and in a way, I did. I set it up that way intentionally or like I, the, to do this article struck me as soon as I slotted the word white supremacism in for like racism. All right. You know what I mean? I, I use that term because it is so used in the contemporary discourse and I thought it would be provocative or whatever. Okay. Uh, but okay. So, well, I mean, we can argue about this, but this is a very hard thing to argue about. I agree that there are many outbreaks of anti-dualism of many sorts and that many in, in Western philosophy. Uh, and there's a constant backlash uh, against dualistic accounts. Um, but I do think like the dualistic accounts, and I, and I think that, I mean, we have to, I think that idealism ends up being fairly compatible with the kind of political undergirding that I'm identifying, actually. Wait, so, so, okay, I'm sorry, so I just got distracted. Say that again, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, my, it's my fault. It's my fault. I was thinking yeah. ahead and I lost you. No, I, was, I, was, I didn't formulate that very clearly either. Like, I, I, I think that idealism grows out of dualism, like, what you know, German idealism, and, and faces many of the same kinds of problems. But... And I and I think of Kant as a kind of dualist, for example. All right. I think that's but, fair. I think that's fair. Although a very different kind of dualist. Yeah, it's and it's it's a hard question, right? It's not that simple. All right, but um, and so I like I, you know, I guess in my follow up to that piece, I listed some figures I think who are outside of that in various ways, like Diogenes, uh, the Cynic. You know, uh, I mean, this might be true of Aristotle to some extent. A lot you know, of the Hellenistic philosophers were more materialist. They were monists. Yeah. I mean, and that's... Arist- and Aristotle naturalizes the form, the formal elements of Plato. And so, you, you know, Aristotle is a proto-naturalist. I mean, he doesn't have the, the conceptual framework and the vocabulary to sort of make that move. But I have no doubt that if he was around much uh, at a much later time, he would he would have been quine, right? I mean, he would have been... he would yeah. have, Maybe. Um, He's still got mind ruling, kind of, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and, but, but he, yeah. he 
puts form into matter. He, he detranscendentalizes yes. it, right? Yes. Uh, um, and um, so... Or sp- but I would say Spinoza, for example. I mean, right up in Descartes' face. Uh, yeah. You yeah. know. Uh, and, and Hume. And Hume is profoundly... And not he's not just profoundly anti-metaphysical, being anti-dualist. He goes even farther. He, he he goes right at that one thing that you're talking about the most. He subordinates reason to the passions. Yeah, true. That's really true. And uh, Hume is not small. My point is, yeah, yeah. Why isn't it a fair response to you yeah. to say only half the philosophical tradition is this, the other half isn't? Maybe that is a better way to put it. I mean, especially when you start thinking about my favorites like Nietzsche or, uh, of course, all these people have some kind of complex relation to whatever forms of oppression were going on in their own lifetimes and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I yeah. guess I, I, I read, I mean, I, I don't know if I thought about this hard enough or even how you would pay this off short of a thousand page book. But I guess I do see the dualist tradition as fundamental in various you ways. Think it's dominant. Look, I, yeah, so, you, might, so, you might be right. I mean, that's a judgment call. Yeah, but I Plato and Descartes, Yeah, I mean, Plato and Descartes, like that's pretty much the dawn of ancient and the dawn of modern philosophy. I don't know. You could say Aristotle and Hume just as convincing. Yes, you could. And, that would, and it would probably do well, better. I would argue that the latter pairing are the better philosophers. I mean, they're, they're, they're better I pairing. Agree. You, I agree. Plato's a great writer. Yeah. But I don't think he's, I don't think he's anywhere in the same universe as Aristotle intellectually. Um, um, I agree. And, uh, <laughs> the arguments are so much better in Aristotle, actually. Hume is such a more sophisticated... To me, Descartes' most impressive work is the stuff we don't remember. And that's all the, phys- all the stuff, the work he did in the physics. That's um, hard reading. Um, um, like the, in, and, and the stuff in terms of, scientific, in terms of method. Um, 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 Hume is the much better, more sophisticated philosopher, it seems to me. Um, but um, let me okay, ask you one so, more, I'm sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. And then I want to ask you one more thing about the history before we yeah, move yeah. forward. Go ahead, though. I, I guess what I see running through much of the history of Western thought uh, and culture and religion is a privileging of the intellectual over the physical and a, an attempt to distinguish human beings in principle from the order of nature. I would agree with that, but I don't. Th- I think that that is only coincidentally related to racism. I think that's the very structure of racism. Like that's the content of racism, that the intellectual should, should subordinate the physical. The intellectual is high and pure, and the physical is low and degraded. Uh, and the intellectual should rule the physical. I think. You know, even elements of Christianity and Judaism and stuff like show show bits of that. Um, so, like, I, 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 that's what I was going to ask you. Actually, I was going to ask you why you're attributing this dualism to Western philosophy as opposed to Abrahamic religion, right? I mean, in other words, yeah. it seems to me that the very heavily normative dimension of the dualism. Yes. A lot of what you were saying at the beginning sounded to me a lot more like Saint Paul than like Descartes. Yes. And so, right. But part, if you're, part, of the, part of the awkwardness of that, and I think I know why you didn't do it. It doesn't help you very much <laughs> because the primary liberatory framework of African Americans in the hist- in history of the United States is the church. I didn't really think about that. I guess I. I, 
I, I may have. I should. But, you know. Why, not, do you, why do you not attribute it to Christianity? I'm a little surprised that you're, you're saddling poor Descartes with this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's not that St. Paul or Augustine were completely outside of the Hellenistic world and stuff either. No, no, no. Absolutely. I agree yeah, with yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, running, they're running the Plato thing a little bit too. Um, I mean, I don't know about Paul really, but uh, a bit, I think. So I think they run together. And, you know, I think that's maybe Descartes' basic defense against the charge of blasphemy or whatever is that, look, basically this is – I'm teaching traditional Christianity in a yeah. way. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely – look, there's no question that – I mean, look, this is the thing, right? I mean, I mean, you get Christianity from the kind of Hellenizing of, out of the Hellenization of Judaism. Now, Judaism yeah. doesn't have these dualisms. No, it doesn't really, no. Um, and Judaism, it's very earthy. It's very it's – very, it, it's it's probably somewhat incoherent by virtue of being earthy in that way. But the whole thing of ensoulment in Judaism is really more like the animation of dirt, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's it much be, more complex, right? And it's, um, yeah, and it is less, less flatly dualistic for I sure. I don't disagree with you that the, that, 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 that the heavily, that, that, that the Christian version is heavily influenced by, you know, Neoplatonic and other sort of I, other ideas that, that comes out of the syncretism that emerges. Right. That's just boiling in that that Hellenistic cauldron there, and, and Descartes is still trying to negotiate that, right? He's still trying to make this, you know, compatible with Christian theology or whatever. Yes, and that's and that's in the sense that he's the bridge between the Scholastics and the modern era. I think that that's right. I just find it. I, I just was a little wondering why I'm reading about Descartes and not about about Pauline about yeah. Paul, Hellenization of the body. Um, right. and, um, um, the elevation of the spirit and the whole idea of, of, of materiality being inherently corrupt and, and all this, yes. sort of the fallen world, all this sort of true, stuff. True. Um, 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 and I think right, right. you get a very different story, but, um, but all these elements run together to form like a basic sort of Western conceptual framework of the universe, which I think is reflected in the structure of racism as it emerges. Okay, so that's that's a key that's a key element, right? So here here's what I guess I'm wondering, and that is I would agree with you on your more general characterization. If you want to characterize Western thought, let's say, not just philosophy, but Western thought, as having as as a core element the idea of the of the, of the conquest of nature. Yes. I would agree with that. Right. And the kind of devaluing of nature. I would argue, however, well, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, is in terms of what I would think is a much more, uh, how shall I say, morally positive humanism, right? I mean, you have to remember the extent to which human misery and immiseration um, is, the, is a product of its confrontation with nature, right? It's yeah. not just, I mean, there's two basic sources of human immiseration, right? One is other people. <laughs> but the other yeah. is nature. You know, it's all very well to get all on your high horse about industrialization, but it's what doubled the human lifespan, right? Yeah. So and so and so, I just think there's a bit of a there's a bit of a kind of a well, we're here comfortable sitting in the in the most advanced, developed world in the world. We get to live to be 85, 90 years old, and now we're going to sit here and 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 nobleize all the savages and run Rousseauian fantasies about pre-industrial society and the whole thing has an aura of unreality to it that I think that worries me and is a little bit of a surprise to me coming from you. 
Um, because I think I thought that you're a very hard nosed kind of cynical. You don't buy bullshit too quickly, and you recognize propaganda when you see it. And I don't know, there was a whiff of propaganda about all of this. This is what you're doing here. I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but but I'm just. I admit it. I try to be provocative. I mean, I love you too much, man. And I saw this. I'm like, what is he doing? Where I know, he... I know, I know, I know. He's like some. So so, what, what's? Do you not see the the sort of the problem, the the conquest of nature? Yeah. Yeah, that idea can as can is easily be given a very moral, humane spin as it can be the negative one you're choosing to give it by shackling it to racism, right? Right. But it is shackled to racism, if you ask me. And it's shackled to environmental disaster, uh, exploitation of animals, etc., etc., etc. Like, I, I do take your point, though. Like, you know, in 1600, the, the basic challenge of human life is to deal with or overcome natural obstacles or, right. you know. If you get an infection, you either die or you lose a limb, right? Right. A, 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 a flu epidemic comes through, everybody gets killed. Now, I view the idea of the conquest of nature as a deeply humane, humanistic idea. Now, the fact that... It's a good way to destroy the world as a whole. Right, but the thing is, is that then hopefully what happens as you get smarter, as you get better at it. And look, I mean, we now okay. have a very, very robust environmentalist movement, right? I mean... I mean, in other words, I guess I'm not sure what you're expecting of history, right? All right, but okay. So one thing is, I just think that it's false, like to go metaphysical, that the idea of a profound gap between the human and the natural is completely unsustainable. Like it's not. I I feel like it's like obviously false. It's it, like once you read Darwin or something, you can certainly not continue along these lines, right? Like we are a particular species of animals. We're not separated from the order of nature in any respect at any moment. Not, not metaphysically we're not, but I mean, right. the, culture, so the metaphysics is false. We are. The metaphysics is false. Okay. So let's, let's start with that. Like even if they needed it for comprehensible reasons, one thing is how, endangering nature is but the other is when we're conquering nature we're also engaged specifically in the project of conquering the world okay and the other people in the world and associating them with nature okay so like this thing comes with a hierarchy like it it always comes with a value hierarchy that privileges mind or privileges even just the human over every other aspect of reality. And I think that is pathological. I think it's sick. I think it's false. Uh, and I think it's liable to lead us to annihilation. Have, right? you, have you read Bernard Williams, The Human Prejudice? I've read a bunch of Williams, but maybe not that one. Okay, so this is stuff that was done pretty much at the, at the end of his life. It was very late. Um, um, and I always teach this essay after teaching all the Peter Singer uh, animal animal. Uh, animal welfare stuff. Yeah, what's the title of the essay? The Human Prejudice. Okay. And um, one of the things that I like about it is that um, it makes us understand, you know, I don't disagree that, let's call it humanism, because that's that's what it is, right? I mean, we're talking descriptively about humanism, right? 
in its classic traditional sense, right? Humanism as in the Renaissance, uh, as as it's understood in the Renaissance, um, um, not humanism in its current form, which is identified with atheism. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the classic traditional humanism, right? And there was a Christian version in the Middle Ages, right, um, of it. Um, And the 20th century, too, like personalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Yeah. Look, I will will not disagree with you that humanism... um, um, gives rise to uh, certain, let's say, let's call them, broadly speaking, environmentally uh, catastrophic uh, results. Yeah. About which we are rightly concerned. Um, the problem is, is that the very intelligibility of the, of the concerns being articulated are themselves uh, only possible in light of the human prejudice. In other words, and uh, what, 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 what okay. William's whole point is that moral concern is an expression of the human prejudice. It is a, an expression of humanism. It's not something that floats in the logical space above, right? Okay. Right. There, no, no, nothing is good from the view from nowhere. Right. Right. And the fact of the matter is, the only reason there is concern for animal welfare is because of the human prejudice, right? The only reason there is concern for the environment, the animals aren't concerned with animal welfare. The baboons are not concerned with the welfare of whoever the hell it is they ate yesterday, right? Um, well, I don't know about that. expression of human, well, listen. I mean, the baboons are concerned concern with the welfare of all the baboons, maybe. Next time you have a conversation with the, the, bamboo, the baboon chief, you can report to me back what he told you. I don't believe that you know anything about what the baboons are motivated by because we can't have well you're making claims about it we can't i'm only i'm only claiming the absence of a motivation i'm saying i know right there is a motivation and that is there's a human motivation to be concerned about these things once i'm acquainted with baboon concerns i'll I'll, i might say that williams is wrong right but i'm i've I've not been so acquainted and i doubt I, i doubt i will be anytime soon right well you can read some of the research i mean you know what does diane fossey think that gorillas are, have no concerns, you know, or that they're... I'm not saying they have no concerns. I'm saying yeah. they don't have ethical concerns of the sort that we are articulating when we express concern about the environment, about animal welfare, about um, 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 about whatever it is, right? I mean, just go look in your backyard and look at how, and look at the animals running around and, 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 and how they're acting and what they're doing, right? I mean, this whole sphere of concern is an expression of human concerns. Listen, it's even in the language. What do we call what do we call the organization whose job it is to make sure animals are treated properly? Okay, the, the ASPCA. Humane society, the humane yeah, society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, treat them humanely. <laughs> right. I mean so well, well, look, yeah, it's, human, beings, it's yeah. human beings that are doing this thinking. You know, we're human beings talking about this. That's right. Uh, but that doesn't undergird the legitimacy of a metaphysical distinction between human selves and the natural world. Do you see what I mean? Like, oh, I agree with that, but that's already been junked. There are no anal- There are very few analytic philosophers, right, that are going to accept the idea that that human beings are metaphysically dualistic. Right? I mean, all right. Well, I disagree with this. I think that there's all kinds of hangover from that. Oh, I agree. There's hangover. Yeah, but that's not I the mean, same as saying that contemporary analytic philosophers are dualists. I think they're dualistic enough to be getting along with. Uh, so, like, when people treat, do the free will problem, I, I quoted John Martin Fisher and Christine Korsgaard in the piece, and I would, uh, you know, I could, I could throw you some Derek Parfit and things like this. They say, like, what makes – they start out with this question. It's the same question as Aristotle or whatever. What 
makes us different and so much better than the other animal species? And the answer is mine, dude. It's self-consciousness and self-control, all right, which gives our actions moral content and makes them more significant and makes us more, more morally valuable than any other thing in nature. All right, I say that that's just imports, you know, it's strictly speaking, it could be compatible with some kind of naturalism, although I think it's, it, I don't think it is really. But uh, it's just the same thing as Kant and Descartes. Uh, it's potentially, strictly speaking, compatible with some kind of naturalistic metaphysics. It still has, first of all, it still emerges from a political vision in which the experts or the philosopher kings or the Harvard professors should be running the whole show, okay? It's, and it has repressed that origin. It pretends to be talking about kind of moral philosophy or the free will problem in an abstract sense. But what it reflects uh, social hierarchies like mad, like all these metaphysics do, all right? And it, ha- and it basically is a, has a mind-body distinction, and it rates mind as extremely valuable and body as degraded. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's, you know, it, you can't be a metaphysical substance dualist at this point in philosophy, but you can do everything else kind of, you know what I mean? And, and have the same disastrous political implications in what seems to be a completely apolitical moral philosophy, metaphysical philosophy, etc. you know? Look, I, it's fine. I, I find myself, you know, having to disagree with you on something that I think in another context of discussion, I probably agree with you with. And that is, look, as a Wittgensteinian, I certainly would agree with you that there are a lot of Cartesian remnants, especially explanatorily, right? Um, um, and so I would actually accept a kind of explanatory dualism that I think um, is, 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 misunderst- is, is misunderstood. In other words, I accept a kind of explanatory pluralism, right? Um, but I think that the, the, the explanatory dualism that I'm talking about that we see today, especially in the philosophy of mind, um, and then the philosophy of action um, is mistaken and is a holdover to what you're talking from from what you're talking okay. about. Um, but um, so, what kind of figures are? Well, like, okay, explanatory dualism, like. Well, so so like you know, the sort of the exp- you know to ex- explain act to explain actions by reference to prior events inside inside your head is a kind of explanatory dualism as opposed to sort of a sort of a Rileyan treatment of actions, right? Um, um, in which, in which it's understood that that, what, what is being referred to as an antecedent is actually a post hoc explanation, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of quasi behaviorist. Yeah. I mean, Wittgenstein is not a behaviorist, but, um, um, it's, it's, it breaks with the explanatory dualism. So, I mean, I would accept sort of all of that. So like human action, human action has to be explained teleologically, essentially, in this view, right? Like right. what you're intended to do, what you're right. trying to accomplish, right. now, whereas the action of a squirrel or whatever, or a tree, uh, does not require that kind of explanation. Yeah. That's right. Now, actually, my views on this are w- much more complicated because I, I, you know, I do accept the sort of Salarzian distinction between the manifest and the scientific, and I think it actually me- makes a very important point. I don't think that human actions are actually reducible to motor movements and all that sort of thing. And so 
I'm, I have a very complicated story to tell about all that, but it's not, it's not relevant to what we're talking about here. All I wanted to say was that at, what, at a certain level within a different conversation, I agree with you that there are dualistic leftovers in philosophy that are problematic, okay? Yeah. But in this context, so everything you just said about mastery of, of, of yourself, of nature and, and mind ruling over body and all of that, I mean, you can make it sort of sound very in, ominous and sinister with respect to um, tying it to this tradition that you talk about and then to the racism that gets because, you know, yeah. Black people are treated like they're just bodies, and so the, the minds, which the white people have, have to rule over the people who just have the bodies and no minds. But the problem is, is that that strikes me also as, as rather, um, I don't want to say cherry-picking, but because, look, you've raised children, right? Yeah. Okay, so so have I. <laughs> and um, you can see the re- results of it, right? The, the, um, my premature aging, right? Um, <laughs> now, look. Certainly, part of what you're doing when you're raising children is trying to get them to master their their inclinations, right? Is trying to get them to to be able to exercise self-control. The language very often and correctly represents this as um, um, whether it's the delaying of gratification or whether it's the the five-second rule or whether it's whatever, is that your better considerations, which mean your reflective states of consciousness, right, should acquire some mastery over your knee-jerk instinctual reactions, okay? And this, indeed, I would argue, is what characterizes maturation in a healthy, normal human being, all right? Now, there's nothing sinister about this. There's nothing metaphorical about it. It's perfectly well represented. And there's not necessarily anything racist about it. Not at all. And you you have to do a lot of work Yes. to load that down with metaphysics and then go trotting off with it like 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 a, like an over over overloaded pack mule over to the racism conversation, and that's what I feel a little bit like you're doing. I feel like you're you're, you're taking this stuff, all of which on its own and independently has perfectly reasonable and understandable historical, and, and I, I guess the whole wrap up of this is I don't understand why what you're doing is any better than saying that evolutionary biology is racist because some racists made use of evolutionary biological ideas. Okay. Well, it does have an element of that. You know, in other words, like I'm saying, is that interesting? Yes, it's interesting. It, for one thing, because I think it elucidates the, the intellect, the conceptual structure of racism. I think if you want to understand what racism is, you're going to do a lot better after you look at it through the structure of, you know, of Cart- if you understand it in terms, for example, of Cartesian dualism or in terms of Kantianism. Like, I think it gives you an understanding. And I also think that it's not a coincidence that all these kinds of metaphysical structures, which aren't, which don't necessarily entail racism, emerge in a society that is racist and has a racist hierarchy. Like, I don't think that's a coincidence in a var- in various ways. I think the racism feeds the metaphysics and the metaphysics feeds the racism. Yeah, but it's right? exactly the first statement that I thought all of these painstaking examples I've been pulling out was designed to contest, right? And I, I don't know that you contested any of them on the individual merits. And yet you're still saying that as a whole... In other words, I've contested that the metaphysics is motivated by the racism. I don't deny that the racism exploits some of the metaphysics. 
But, but that's no different than the way that racists exploit evolutionary biology, right? That doesn't mean that there's something that racism motivates evolutionary right. biology. Now, if Cartesian dualism is motivated primarily by mechanistic physics, and if talk about mastering yourself is motivated mostly by just sort of good old common sense child rearing and, and self-control, right? And if, and, if no, the, I think there are, and if the conquest of nature is largely an expression of the effort to sort of reduce human immiseration, right, then I don't see how you've made a case that the, meta, that, that the racism informs the metaphysics. I, all right. <laughs> if we were, okay. The, the causation that leads to, say, Kant's philosophical system or Descartes is immensely complicated. Right. And, and a lot of it comes internally from like a series of pressures that are emerging in science and, you know, philosophy at that moment or even in theology. Um, but I also think that typically these philosophies, even in their super abstract metaphysical moments, also reflect the political systems in which they emerge, the economic relations in which they emerge. Um, in, in like a very subtle and complex way. So I, I think that the concept of the human self in Plato is a reflection of his political philosophy. Okay. And I sort of think that, I think that's fair. Yes. Look, and I think that this is an aristocrat and, a, and, a, and, and an anti-democrat, right? So we, yes, of course. Yes. I, I think so. Yeah. So I mean, it kind of comes from that. And I also think that, okay. So, and I think this picture where, Yes, I think the picture of a human being as basically a self-control problem, okay, like as, as, as several different things, three of them or five of them, and, and one of them that has to be the ruler and the others that have to be the servants or the slaves. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying about child rearing. I think there's other individual's development arc, right? I mean, from a child, infant, toddler, up through until hopefully an ethical, productive adult, right? Right. And, but, it's all about self-mastery. No. I mean, no, no. A perfectly self-mastered person is, not, is also not recognizable as human. And, and what is mastering what, man? Like, how many parts do I have and what has to subordinate what? And why am I thinking of myself as this oppression machine where part of myself needs to subdue the other parts of myself? I don't really experience it that way. I experience it, you know, sometimes I have these kind of divisions. but And I think this is true in child-rearing stuff too. It's going to be a negotiation, man. Like, uh, And also, you, you might want to think about not just chopping up people into the high part that is suited to control and the other parts that must be subordinated for maturation or something like that. I think that's kind of an ill picture and it's a lot more complex than that. Right? Like for example, did you see this, uh, this 23 year old Olympic medalist, uh, bike rider who committed suicide a month or two ago? No, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I've just been reading the articles about her and she was raised by super structured parents who demanded absolute self-control at every moment. They didn't uh, permit their, their kids, for example, to watch movies unless they were on an exercise machine. 
and stuff like this. She got utterly driven. I mean, so she was a, she got perfect SAT scores. She was completely self-controlled as her friends describe her every minute of every day. Okay. And then she killed herself. Okay. It's just, it's not, that's not a, a way I want to think about myself. And it's not the way I want to think about human beings. It's like, I've got this faculty that is suited to rule because it's intellectual or whatever. Now I got to subdue my toes. Okay. Like, like that, you know, I'm looking at myself at that point, like a political hierarchy in which bits are, you know, suited to rule other bits. Now that doesn't necessarily get you straight to racism. I think it kind of emerges from racism though. And, uh, or it, it, but they're really isomorphic in the same culture at the same moment. I don't think that's the way like people in many other cultures have conceived the human self. And I think it's kind of an ill way to conceive the self. And I think it goes back to Plato and shit, man. Yeah. I just, I think you're, I think you're connecting things together and giving a very, um, um, uh, Baroque characterization that just, I just want to just put back up my very simple description. You know, last week, we're, we're having particularly uh, fun times with our 17-year-old um, because we're at that even most fun of times when she's starting her senior year, she's got to take her SATs, she's got to apply to colleges. Um, I was just there two years ago, man, yeah. And um, so we're really, we're really having a, good, a great time. And um, I just, you know, this week, after several rounds of, you know, fights and, and ex- emotional explosions and all this, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I realize now, I said, I said, basically, this is very simple. When I can control myself, this goes well. When I, re- <laughs> when I react to Victoria, when I react to my daughter, um, as if, as if I'm reacting to a real, like, contestant or to, like, a real challenger or to, like, a peer or something, it all goes to shit in a minute. And what did I mean? I yeah. meant something like self-mastery right now. Yeah. That doesn't entail anything metaphysical. It doesn't entail this picture that you've painted. It doesn't require any Plato. It doesn't, it just, it just, and it seems to me that you're, you're, you're gluing things together to try to create a picture. I accept the idea that the Western philosophical tradition has parts of it have been used by racists and imperialists and so on and so forth. I might even agree that some of the philosophy itself arose out of these, uh, out of these, uh, out of these programs, let's call them. Right. Yeah. But the bulk of the tradition that you talk about in the essay, Descartes, all, I mean, I don't think so, right? Um, 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 even even when they do say race, I mean, Hume says all kinds of racist stuff, but to say that his philosophy is primarily right. a, a racist project just strikes me as as, as demonstrably. Incredible. I think that's wrong. That that would be wrong too. Um, um, can, um, I, can I press? Yeah, you say whatever you want. Go yeah. ahead. Can I press a little bit on the connection that you get in so much contemporary philosophy? Yeah, go ahead. Let's talk uh, about the contemporary. Yeah, let's talk yeah, about self-mastery and self-control and freedom. Okay. okay. So that's how Course Guard uh, defines freedom. It's how – Of course, she's a, Kant, she's a Kantian. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, that, okay, you are free when you are – when you can control yourself, when you can uh, assert self-control. Now, I think that's a ridiculous 
picture of human freedom. It's utterly wrong. It's only it's only ridiculous philosophically, but it's not ridiculous in the version that I just described before, right? Oh, like sort of a common sense, get a hold of yourself moment or something like that. How much of maturation and successful social negotiation involves self-mastery, right? Okay, can I, can I say why I think that that's a ridiculous philosophical conception now? Yes. It's yeah. because, okay, it divides you into two parts. The part that is controlling and the part that is controlled. It's a picture of self-enslavement exactly as much as it is a picture of liberation. Yeah. Okay. And if you are the lawgiver of yourself in a Kantian way, and you are always responsive to your own commands, I don't think that that's, you know, capitulation to the law that you give yourself is not any kind of vision of human freedom. Okay. And it does divide you into a master and a slave. All right. And it defines freedom as the master crushing the slave. All right. Like that is nothing. And it's not phenomenologically uh, a good picture of human freedom too, because just as often as maybe imposing constraints could be, uh, or much more plausibly than imposing constraints is a form of freedom is bursting constraints is a form of freedom. So when you violate the law that you give yourself, that is often when you would have a a sensation of liberation, right? Like when you lose your self-consciousness and just dance or something like that, or when you transgress the moral principles that you are trying to impose on yourself or that other people are trying to impose on you. That is often when the, the sensation of liberation and acting from free will occurs. I think that these ideas, the, the, the philosophies that tightly uh, connect self-control to freedom, free will, are just kind of obviously wrong. And, but that is the dominant theme. Like they're, I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of people they are. I think they're self-deluded people if they think, if Christine Korsgaard thinks that she has mastered her desires, whoever she is outside of all those desires or whatever, uh, with nobody or, you know, uh, I, and, and if she wants to call that freedom, I just think she's, well, she's wrong and she's ill and she's creating a self that is an internal site of the, just the same kind of oppression that we inflict on, you know, women, black people, Native Americans, whatever. Like, I think, so anyway, that's, I mean, I have a very hostile response to this whole series of moves, and it does seem to be the consensus in the current moral philosophy and free will. I, I don't, I don't know. I was under the impression that most analytic philosophers today are either determinists or compatibilists. I am not under the impression that most analytic philosophers today accept the, a, a, the Kantian radical notion of freedom that requires a kind of a noumenal self. I, I mean, right. course guard does course guards is obviously a modernized version. Um, look, I mean, course guard just strikes me as sort of the best of the worst philosophers. Right. I mean, I mean, in the sense that, you know, she, <laughs> Look, anybody who's still carrying the water of either Mill or Kant clearly doesn't didn't understand or missed missed what happened in the twentieth century, right? I mean, I mean, I don't see how anybody 
who's read They're Pritchard. kind of back, though. I don't know how anybody who's read either Pritchard or Ross could possibly still be ca- carrying that water now. Um, um, and, and, or, or Anscombe, for that matter. Hold on one second. Yeah, yeah. Hold on one second. Sure. Uh, that's my dog is letting herself in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I agree with Anscombe that the notion of self-legislation is completely incoherent. Oh, um, good. Um, I should um, read that in Anscombe. Yeah, um, Anscombe says that in, in Modern Moral Philosophy, in the essay okay. Modern Philosophy, yeah. Um, but, um, but again, you know, my, my inclination, and maybe this is just, maybe part of what's going on here is that you and I just do philosophy very differently. So what I'm always interested in is recovering what makes sense of it, in it, right? Um, and to me, all you need to do is strip the Kantian insights of some of their metaphysical exotica and you get really, really interesting and I think in some ways deeply true um, uh, understandings. Look. Well, that's what Korsgaard thinks too. It's a very easy view of freedom to say that it's a liberation, that, that it's a liberation to your desires, right? Um, right. Um, um, a liberation, that, though? A liberation of it from external rules with regard to your desires, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, you know, the 1960s view of freedom, right? Yes. Um, but I also think that there's a really valuable insight into Kant. In Kant, and that is, well, wait a minute, there also is a kind of liberation and resistance to your desires, right? Now, of course, that's just the expression of another set of desires. Sure. Right? <laughs> but it, it's an interesting problematization, which is probably not a word, of this naive, what I would call naive view of freedom, right? In other words, Kant problematizes freedom in a way that I think ultimately is illuminating, so long as you don't take too seriously some of the systematic elements, which, by the way, yeah. is why I'm opposed to systematic philosophy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, And so um, I, I always choose to sort of look at it in that, in that light, and, and maybe, maybe um, 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 I'm inclined more to find the Kant star that makes sense right. <laughs> inside the historical Kant, which doesn't, right? Yeah. Um, and well, that's... See, it's a very analytic thing to do, right? I mean, um, yeah. And when when I'm reading the history of philosophy, I'm usually looking for whom I can destroy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, You're how can I? Resentful, and I'm not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you just posted about how bitter and resentful you are. Yes, I did. <laughs> you don't care if there's any philosophy departments uh, in 50 years. Yeah. Um, let me ask you just one last thing while we're on this. Um, and um, because you did say that you are kind of saying this, and I want to ask you whether you think this is really a fair thing to do. So I asked you, why shouldn't I think that really all you're doing is saying that, well, there are some bad people who have used philosophical ideas for bad reasons. Um, why isn't that just like saying, well, there's bad people who have used uh, Darwinian um, evolutionary biology for bad reasons. Um, well, I think it's a little it's worse. Un- than that. It's unfair to saddle the science with that, right? And yeah. why is it why is it fair to saddle Western philosophy with this? If some of the arguments I've been making about the actual historical and theoretical ideologies of a lot of these theories, um, um, you know, why is it not? Why are you not engaging in a kind of um, um, very today very common? So let me just give you an example, right? So, so one of the things I'm involved in, and I just got sucked into this uh, entirely accidentally, is these damn gender identification wars. And the reason I got drawn in was entirely the trans stuff. Yeah, yeah. The reason I got drawn into it is entirely accidental. A person who I know and very much like over from the UK, and I know her from aesthetics, 
Kathleen Stock, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I've known her for years because I used to go to British Society of Aesthetics meetings every year, and she was an essential player. And I just started seeing her getting savaged on social media. And my inclination is always to defend my friends. And so I just sort of like, you know, I, went, I went running in, you know. Yeah. I only then found out what the whole thing was about later. But a very common thing that these gender activists will say is, oh, you're a transphobe because you're using arguments that are sometimes used by other people. Right. <laughs> now, I find that to be deeply demagogic, right? I mean, yeah. that, 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 in my view, is a demagogic tactic. It's trying to silence you, basically. Tell me why you're not engaged in that kind of demagoguery with respect to this. That's the last challenge I'm going to throw at you. Yeah, yeah. About this. I mean, like I say, there. I think there's an an element of fairness in that. Like, because uh, it sounds like I'm just straight up calling Descartes a racist, you know, or whatever. Uh, and in, not in virtue of anything you said about race at all, or thought about race, right. but in virtue of, like, this abstract metaphysical yeah. theory. Uh and the fact that that abstract metaphysical theory is reflected in many expressions of racism or something like that, right. that's not Descartes' fault and, right. you know, et cetera. I mean, I think that's, that's fairly fair. I, I mean, my overall diagnosis of the, of the West, though, is that it's informed by varieties of political and economic oppression very thoroughly from very early and that you see symptoms of that in all kinds of places that you might not expect it. You know what I mean? Or that, um, or where it's not explicit. So like I say, like these hierarchical visions of the human self. Now, first of all, a hierarchical vision of the human self in which there's the faculty that should control and the faculties that should be controlled and stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily have direct political implications. It doesn't even necessarily emerge from uh, political problems or something like that. But the way it runs through the Western tradition, I say, consistently shows it connected to forms of Western oppression. Like the basic forms of Western oppression are very similar to the basic structures of Western metaphysics throughout. So, like, whether I'm accusing someone of being a racist, like Plato, you damn racist or whatever, or white supremacist, uh, is less interesting to me than sort of, like, trying to shed light on, like, the whole atmosphere that is kind of, like, saying what the world is, what the human self is, and that's reflecting, if you ask me, very often and, and like, pretty directly or even like sort of obviously structures of oppression, including the idea that, for example, the experts should rule or that, you know, the educated or the, the, you know, the intellectual types or the mindish types should control the body types and stuff like that. Like, I mean, so I'm not, you know, I, I pull back from like you racist Immanuel Kant, you know, or whatever. Uh, unless I can find a quote that where he expresses that directly, you know, and there are such quotes, I guess. But um, he does, which he does, but it, it doesn't have anything yeah. to do with it. it. Doesn't have to do with anything with causality being a category, right? I mean, I mean, it's it's it's. I don't know about that. I mean, um, um, yeah, I, I guess I guess they just. I don't like the way that this is being used in contemporary politics, and so yeah. 
I, 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 I don't, you know, and, and it occurs to me, you know, I agree with everything that you just characterized about Western uh, civilization. Um, and I would say, you know, it's, it's the worst civilization except for all the others, right? I mean, in the sense that, look, I mean, I also wonder whether a properly, correctly express, uh, emphasized self-criticism can easily be misinterpreted as some sort of distinctive or unique uh, uh, quality. In other words, I think that what you would discover if you did a fair-minded survey of all the human civilizations on, our, on the planet is that they were all fucking horrible to themselves and to each other, right? Um, um, now, now, I do think, in other words, I, I really highly doubt that if you know that the, the Chinese were any better to their peasants than than you know than than the West was, you know, right? I mean, you know, in, in other words, or, or, or anybody else's peasants that they wound up, um, um, whose orbit wound up uh, falling under their own. Now, I do think one correctly emphasizes the wrongness of one's own, right? I mean, that's that's the yeah. that your job is to keep your house in order first, right? Okay, yeah. but I do think that there is a kind of self-villainization that's happening that goes far beyond that. And that has in part to do with this revisionist and in my view, uh, uh, misleading take on the history of ideas, right? Um, that, that I don't think you do, but I think is easily done. Um, and um, I just, I always want to stay on the side of that line, right? Um, people ask me why I'm always attacking Democrats and the answer is, well, because that's my party. Yeah, yeah. The Republicans can go deal with their own fucking assholes. I have to deal with my fucking assholes, right? And that's why I'm, like, often attacking uh, the Western tradition or white people right. or men right. or, you know, yeah. Right. But what I, would, what I would really worry about is this idea that, well, you know, Western philosophy has this special quality, and it's the reason why Western civilization is this specially terrible civilization. I am absolutely certain that if we did just an excruciating analysis of China and its intellectual tradition, you'd find just as much rotten shit, right, all over the place, um, um, or Japan, or whoever, right? I mean, whoever it is you want. I mean... Well, um, look, look, man. That's the Western the nature of human civilization, right? I mean, that's just... Well, okay, but that, I mean, I think that's too easy, man. I mean, Western civilization, and in the period we're talking about, like the modern philosophy period, is subduing the entire planet. Okay, like that's not something that even the Chinese did, really. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, or the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, it's not that there weren't terrible things. And I mean, but this, these are particularly colonialism. What about the Jap- what about the Jap- What about the Japanese? Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is true. Uh, and and I and think don't tell, don't tell me if you go into Sub-Saharan Africa and look at the history of how these people treated each other before anybody white ever showed up. That it was that. In other words, there's a very come on. There's a very easy and phony kind of noble savage yes. narrative going. I know, on. and I'm not doing that. I hope. No, no, you're not. But what I'm saying is, I worry that this crosses over from okay, okay. correct emphasis of, on yeah. self criticism to some sort of a, a notion of unique villainy in the history of human civilization. That I just, okay, what, I, just what, King, buy. I just don't buy it. Okay, what King Leopold did in the Congo is not something Africans ever did to each other. He killed millions of people or worked them to death in the mines and stuff yeah. like that. Okay? I mean, uh, and actually, if you think about the great genocides and the unbelievable world wars, 
they seem to arise basically out of Western civilization. All right, but that's certainly yeah. a coincidence of of time and industrialization. And in other words, yeah, you know, don't tell me if you know these other people hadn't industrialized first. And and in other in other words, I, I don't believe that human nature just varies that much. Um, um, you know, in the sense of the capacity to be murderous, shitty, murderous, horrible people. I sure. think it's pretty universally shared amongst the uh, the human population. I mean, um, I think I think a lot of the distinctive modern horrors are products of industrialization. Um, um, yeah, I mean, and all that, that then entails socially and politically, and you know, it's where modern bureaucracy comes out of. It's where the whole organization of. My, I mean, you're right. Look, you can't get the kind of horror you get out of German mass extermination without bureaucracy management. Um, I mean, it's Kafka plus the Industrial Revolution, right? I mean, um, but, you know. Plus Western political theory. One group of Rwandans managed to murder 800,000 other groups of Rwandans in two weeks with machetes, right? Yes. I mean, we are are very capable. That's true. Of being fucking horrible to each other. No, that's really true. I just don't want to. Look, there's so much in the tradition that you are attacking here. That, in my view, provides the best case for human liberation. I don't think that any better case for human liberation has been made than the liberal that of the liberal tradition. Okay. And I just want to be careful. I fear that the liberal tradition has already come under such a sustained attack from progressive activists. Yeah. That we're losing sight of the fact that, again, it's the worst political philosophy except for all the others. Mm. It has- I, have critic- I have criticisms of, of that tradition. But I, I mean, I think you're right, and I, I, I think that one thing that kind of goes wrong in my piece or whatever is I'm just waving off the entire Western tradition, and I'm kind of saying it's uniquely evil and stuff like that. And I mean, I think that's sort of a fair criticism. Like it, it's too global, too quick. I mean, I make fun of the utilitarians all the time, but damn it, they were important in the history of liberatory movements. Okay, I mean, Mill was arguing for the for for women's rights early, um, and Bentham for animal rights. And right, and prison yeah. reform, and all sorts yes, of stuff true. That I think right-minded people should appreciate. Um, and I, and when I look at the civil rights movements of the '60s, I see primarily the liberatory ideas of the liberal tradition, not the progressive tradition. Okay, um, the progressive tradition was tied up with eugenics and all kinds of sort of you know. When I hear Martin Luther King, when I read those speeches, I'm hearing the expression of the best ideas within the liberal tradition combined with the human the humanist the humanistic side of Christianity. That's what I'm seeing. Right. And I there just There's a prophetic spiritual faith based side of it. I don't I don't wanna I don't want to sully that. You know, I'm worried about sullying that um in the current climate. Um 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 I have more reservations about liberalism probably but Yeah we I should probably do a dialogue on that. Um 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 because the older I get, the more I'm start. I'm thinking that it's the best we've done, despite the fact that it's got all sorts of problems. Um, but I've yet to hear a better explanation of why we should treat other people well, um, um, uh, especially people who are not our intimates, who are not our friends, who are not. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and uh, uh, I just worry that the way I, I feel like I'm watching the disintegration of the traditional civil rights coalition into a set of warring factions. And part of the reason is because yeah. the abandonment of traditional liberal ideas. Okay. Um, um, and so your, 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 your essay scared me a little bit in that it's not that I haven't heard that before. It's that I haven't heard it from people like you before. Yeah. Okay. 
So anyway, that that it's it's wonderful though because you and I get to have this kind of conversation, and we get to cover a lot of territory. And because we live in a liberal society, yeah, we're allowed to have this conversation. <laughs> Damn it! All right, all right. Um, so, Crispin, uh, I wish you the best of luck with your upcoming semester. You too, man. I wish all of us the best of luck with our upcoming semesters. How Just much? Intro. What are your enrollments? How, how many how many students you got this term? Uh, I, it's been a week or two since I looked, I guess. But uh, I, my, I think my intro section is is full, like thirty five maybe. But I'm teaching a, a section. Uh, I'm teaching a course on Confucius and Confucianism. That well, probably only has. You're going to enjoy that, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. It has five students, I think, and I, I'm teaching 19th century philosophy, which I think has 12 or something. Oh, so you've got three preps this, this semester. Yeah, yeah. I've got a giant section of intro with 90 people. Oh, golly. And then I'm teaching a course. Uh, my, it's a course that I have regularly teach in a rotation every other year, Philosophical Ideas and Literature, the entire course of which consists of novels by Philip K. Dick. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I fucking love it. I mean, I taught, I, taught various iter- I taught various iterations of this course. So the last version of the course I taught was a sort of a dark look at the American dream. So I did like Nathaniel West and oh, John Gideon and Hunter S. Thompson and Bruddy Stanellis. Oh wow! Um, one that of the books, great. one of the books I did in that course was Philip K. Dick's Scanner Darkly, and the reaction to that was so strong. So I'm like. Why don't I just do a whole course on Dick? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm doing a whole course on Dick now, and and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. So, um, you can bring all kinds of philosophy out of Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah. He's a goldmine. I don't know how, how much of him you've read, but he's been a, a long time. He's a goldmine. He's he's like, I think Ursula Le Guin described him as our Kafka, but okay. he goes farther than that. I mean, he's not as good of a writer as Kafka. Yeah. He his concerns include Kafka's and then many more outside yeah, yeah, yeah. of. Um, and so, yeah, you can get tons of mileage. I mean, we, we do Man in the High Castle. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. That whole dialogue you and I had about the factuality of history. Yes. That's the conversation I have with students when we do Man in the High Castle. Like, that's what, great, man. What actually happened, and what does it mean to say that this actually happened? Yeah. And then with androids, obviously, we do personhood and yeah. all this sort of stuff. And so it's it's wonderful. It's a wonderful, a wonderful opportunity. Anyway, Crispin, thank you so much. Thanks, um, Dan. We'll see you again soon. And I hope I wasn't a jerk, was I? No, and I think it went pretty well, man. I don't know. No, I, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. I just I I wanted to be tough because I did get upset, but I didn't want to be a jerk to you. And I hope I succeeded. You weren't at all. I hope so. You were milder than I expected. Okay. Take care, my friend, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Take it buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.